Hello and welcome to episode four of the Talking Toro podcast. With me as always is uh, Peter Bourne um, and I'm not quite sure where we're going to start with this but thankfully I had other plans uh, last Friday night so I was able to avoid uh, watching Torino's embarrassing 1-0 defeat to 10-man Genoa. So Peter, over to you. Let me know your thoughts on the game. Should we just go to the hero of the week? I don't really want to talk about Genoa. Um, I think a lot of people were very keen for us to do this pod on Friday evening straight after the match because there was a lot of a uh, lot of quite good chat on 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 Twitter about the match and obviously a lot of us um, felt felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I'm I probably made a. I made a statement after the game that it was one of the worst performances probably over the last five or six years. And quite rightly, a few people came back and said, you know, there's Spezia, Fiorentina games where we played against 10 men. We've had some real batterings as well. Um, but what was different for me about this match compared to the Spezia and the Fiorentina games, we we were desperate for a result in those games. Um, where it all to play for? We really needed the points. We were short of confidence. Um, so, and under uh, no, there was that kind of Giampaolo era as well, where we just we couldn't buy a point or a goal. So it's quite a different context. And I think even in those games, we created chances, um, especially in the Fiorentina one. But Friday evening was. I had a really good day on Friday, and um, I had a day off work. And uh, then, yeah, you remember Torino are playing in the evening and you know it's going to ruin your day or take the shine off your day anyway. Uh, no, it was a really, really, really bad performance uh, against a bad team. Not a single player came out with any credit. And, yeah, for me, the key thing, we'll talk a little bit more about Juric and some of the things in in, in the game, but when their coach at halftime with a 1-0 lead takes off Deathstroke, brings on another defender, a literally said, you know, we're announcing we're going to stay in our half the rest, rest of this game. It's defence versus attack. Torino, what have you got? A weird, absolutely nothing. Juric had nothing to counter that. Um, and yeah, he outschooled by you know a guy searching for his first win in Italian football. It was weak, insipid, no creativity, no urgency. And a lot of players who you start to think won't be there next season and you wonder about their motivations. And I think uh, I'm probably slightly hypocritical because about six weeks ago, I was, you know, lauding Juric saying he was the best thing since best Torino coach or the most likable Torino coach um, and the football anyway, the most, the most kind of interesting football in a long time. After that win at Sampdoria, I remember being very, very encouraged because that was the first win where, We've been a goal, you know, we'd struggled away from home. We struggled uh, overturning deficits. We did it all in that game. And ever since then, we've gone from, you know, the Marassi to the Marassi. We've had seven, eight weeks of pretty easy fixtures. We've only performed in the two hardest matches on paper. And yeah, the situation is, I think Juric has nine games to save his job, personally. Um, and that's uh, not a situation we saw six weeks ago. Uh, How was your Friday evening? Mine was much better, thankfully, because I didn't get to watch the game. Um, and I, I very quickly, whilst I was at the bar ordering a pint of Guinness, uh, when I saw that Ostergaard had been sent off, I had a, a brief moment of, oh, we should go on to win three points now. And then I remembered that it was it was Torino and 
things weren't that simple. And as soon as we weren't, we hadn't equalised by half time. I think I realised how the game was going to go, and, and that's what that's. I did have the intention of going back to watch it, but I could just imagine exactly how it was going to be like. And, and watching the highlights didn't really didn't really surprise me. It, it looked the the game seemed to play out as I had imagined it would be. It was just that there was no urgency, there was no sort of desire. It was it was almost and and Genoa needed the points more and probably wanted it more. Um but that is a, a worrying side for a for a team who for large periods of the season have looked so good. I think for football fans the biggest frustration, especially from my point of view, is consistency. If your team isn't very good that's almost okay because it, you're you're used to them not being very good. My frustration with Torino this season is in some games they've been absolutely exceptional and in others they've been absolutely dreadful. And it's how on earth can you go from that performance against into the champions where you rightfully should have should have comfortably beaten them to then unable to create a chance against a side who won one game all season. And and that's what's frustrating to me. It's like even even in seasons that you, you discussed previously, where we were absolutely shocking, at least that was we were continue we were we were awful for especially last season for the majority of the season. There wasn't one great performance and then um three or four bad ones and then a good performance. We were pretty terrible for the entirety of the season and at least you sort of knew what you were gonna get. Whereas this sort of um inconsistency is is infuriating for the fan. Um you, you mentioned the the nine games left for Juric to save his job. And as soon as he gave me a little uh, statistical quiz at the start of last week's uh, episode, I have done a little bit of research today. Because um, I, I had in mind that, that Juric's seasons at Gen- uh, 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 Hellas, sorry, um, in the so, previous two campaigns sort of followed a similar um, script where they would start off the season absolutely unbelievably. And then they would reach safety or near to safety and then they would tail off towards the end of the season. So in the last two campaigns, with nine games left, so 18 games in total, how many games do you think Juric's Verona won? Top of my head, I'd say six. They won one. One of 18. They won one of 18. Nine defeats and eight draws. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's a very interesting... Very interesting find. <clears throat> Slightly differently, though. I mean, you felt those Verona teams, like you said, maybe it was a lack of motivation. Maybe they hit a glass ceiling. Um, and you know, when they, when you set out with an objective and you reach it, there's a possibly a natural tendency to to relax. And that was to me, it's, from the outside. That's sort of what I always thought happened. And and when Juric came to Torino, having that in the back of my mind that his hella sides always seem to start off really well and then coast. I was like, well, well maybe that is it. It's a being a side who their main priority is to, to stay in the league, which probably for Torino after the two previous seasons, that was our priority at the start of the season. But a lot of investments gone into the team, uh, albeit for, for loan players on, on big wages who, who may or may not be redeemed at the end of the season, which you would hope would be another uh, motivation for them to to sort of improve their performances and I'm just not sure whether again I don't think I don't think manager goes into a game purposefully not wanting his, his side to to win or to 
he's not doing anything different, but whether there is just something that's happened, where there's just some sort of taking your foot off the gas and and the the saying um sort of that that to that's very typical in, in England when teams towards the end of the season sort of take it easy is, is that they're on the beach and whether they were just a little bit too close to the to the beach and, and the seaside in, in Genoa on Friday and, and they took that a little bit literally. Um the worrying thing is we're we're in uh Salano uh in two weeks' time. So we're we're even closer to the beach. So I think that my my concern is is the fact that we we've been so good for so for so much of the season that I just don't want it to peter out, no pun intended, and I don't want them to just the the memory of this season to be games like that Genoa game and not sort of the Fiorentina game and the performances in the derbies. Yeah, I I was still think this season is lacking. I mean, the Fiorentina game was was great, but I think Fiorentina just tactically got got everything wrong, their approach wrong that day. And I think it was a bit sad that was a, a kind of Monday, some ridiculous time on a Monday. So I felt that match didn't that performance didn't really get the kudos it deserved. And had we beaten into like we said last week, it would have been a bit of a statement to to kind of. Mark, you know, mark the season, and I still think we're kind of looking for that, looking for kind of that signature performance or or memory from the season. I guess my concern is one is Urich moans a lot, and some of his moaning is great because he's challenging Cairo and Vagnetti, and um, you know, pushing for improvement because there's a lot, a lot of improvement is not coming within the club. It's very kind of. Um, the attitude for a few seasons now from from the outside anyway is just to is is basically to be to do the minimum possible to stay in Serie A. Um so Jurich has pushed thing has pushed things along but um with someone like Ur- 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 Urbano Cairo you can't you know he he is a communications person and um he is also very um image conscious um and to to be kind of pushing him every week in a press conference is fine when you're winning and you're doing well. And I think that that narrative might start to change, um, you know, if there's frustrations within the club at how the team's doing. So that that's one factor. There's I've read quite a bit recently that you know people doubting whether Urich will be there next season. He's you know he's moaning to get himself out almost. I'm not sure I quite agree with that. I think it's just just a little bit his personality. Uh, the second thing is. I don't think it is burnout. I just think this team is set up to play a certain way. And when they don't have the legs and when the opposition plays a certain way and we don't have the intensity, there is no backup plan. And I don't know whether the solution, I don't know whether it's, I think Juric is clearly a coach who has his system. It's very dogmatic. um, Doesn't want to change that. And perhaps from his point of view, it's like he doesn't have the players to, he needs a different type of squad and a different type of players and maybe one to 11 uh, when all fit, it really works. And to play that kind of football, you need a heavy rotation and maybe he doesn't have that. And that's in his defense. But on the other hand is on a match like Friday evening where the opposition basically run out to play. Why are you playing with three center backs in your own half? One of which Bremer is very aggressive. You could see Bremer had nothing to do. And when he had nothing to do, he, you know, he was kind of constructing the play, which is not he's not there to do. He had Rodriguez, who 
I don't understand with Rodriguez why he never takes set pieces when he's got a pretty good record with with Switzerland and other clubs. But Rod, yeah, Rodriguez is slow. Um, and then you had Itzo, who we, you know, you and I both uh, made a point to come back and see Itzo. Just had had a, yeah, he was rusty and understandably rusty. And, and I thought you were, uh, yeah, I thought you were a little bit harsh to blame him for the goal. To be honest, having uh, having seen it, I think it's it's two mistakes which is then sort of cemented by him reacting a bit slowly but he's probably anticipating Barisha not to to fumble yeah. it in the, in the way that he does but like you say that that's probably it's impossible to say but say that's Gigi or, or something whether being a bit more uh used to sort of playing football and and not lacking that match practice whether he'd be able to ad- adapt to that a little bit quicker um I thought the uh, f- to be honest first time I saw the red card instant I thought it, I thought it was a foul, and then uh, I looked at the replay and uh, quite quite quickly realised it. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and maybe think that he he does go in and looks like uh, Ostergaard and he's trying to avoid the challenge, but there's definitely no contact there. No, I think I sent you a text message. Yeah, you, you uh, called it quite. Sort of, you called it quite early. Well, and then... I, th- I think Ostergaard just looked like he wanted to get himself sent off, and I think that the referee was quite happy to oblige. But I don't think that. That sending off helped us. I'm not, you know, yeah, it should have been easy to play against ten men, but it it ultimately forced Genoa into a tactic which worked quite well for them. And I just felt once Genoa had made it, this in Europe should have just let's see something different. Let's let's okay, Sanabria was was out, but let's stick two strikers up. You know, if if you're not constructing anything, safe corner requires or just keep. You know, keep them pen pen in different ways. Uh, Richie, why why is Richie not getting a game? Why why are we not seeing Sec? Um, there's a lot. You know, are there two are there two signings that he's not happy with, and it's a bit of a protest point that that they're not getting minutes. Um, and then the substitutions again, which I'm, which I do moan a lot about. But you you take Rodriguez off to bring Bongiorno on. Um, again, I understand sometimes you just want to keep your shape. That's the way you play and you build you build from the back and you try and get those center backs forward to uh, and and create numerical advantages in different places but it, it was quite clear that wasn't going to work and then you know they just had the image of Ansaldi looked overdressed on Friday he had his i don't know massive gloves on he's, he looked like he had three layers of clothing on and he just he looks he looks completely cooked he had no, nothing to offer as uh, when he came on and as you've pointed out before, yeah, we miss Priot is clearly the player in our squad who can play between the lines and in those sort of situations can do something a little bit different. Um, Bellotti was in the, in a similar kind of mould to his Bologna performance. And yeah, it was just, it was very clear quite early in that second half that we weren't, we weren't going to get back into that game without, um, you know, without a massive tactical change. And the other thing I'd just, close and say Juric is look at Verona this season they've not suffered by his departure so you know I, I, okay they've had to change coach but Verona have pretty much on par with with previous seasons um where you know whether they can sustain it to the end of the season but you know maybe you know it's a little bit that residual thing where they're benefiting from everything he put in place and they're getting that you know the, the, the season bounce was a lot of the the players are still there, but 
you know, he's 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 left one job and and you know that team that team has not suffered. So um yeah, nine games. I do think between off the field and on the field, it's gonna be a very interesting seven, seven, eight, nine games. And I do worry about the amount of players we have in our squad who how many how many Torino players could you say with certainty you think will be there next season? I think you'd you would struggle to make an eleven. And uh, well, or eleven of eleven players you'd want to field, but I think I think you raise a, a couple of good points there about about Urich and if you think sort of put put together both of our sort of theories, neither of them really make sense as to why they. So if you think of the first theory that sort of they've reached safety and they're sort of willing to um, just sort of coast along to the end of the season, then why would you not give players? like Richie or Sack, an opportunity and see what they can do because you've got nothing to lose. You know what all the rest of the players can do because you've seen them for the previous 20, 28, 29 games. And then the the second um, theory is, is burnout because of the high-intensity football that they play. Another reason why that you've still, if you've got tired of players and, and you can see that on the training ground, you can see that they're not performing at the same level that they were previously, even though they're not at the highest standard. I mean, Voivoda and Singo, Singo a little bit um, got a bit more of an excuse with his with his younger age. I just I think that's probably the biggest weakness in the squad is is the wing backs and Ina. I I I think I texted you during the game on Friday. I think I'm closer to starting for Torino than than Ina is getting a game at the moment, um, and I don't understand why that is because at the start of the season he did he he, he was a he was a starter and again didn't have. Didn't have any unbelievable performances, but but sort of it looked like Urich fancied him and, and was willing to have him as part of the squad. But, but now he he can't get a game at all, um, and I just I just think like you say, if Urich doesn't do, you would think it would be in his interest if he has got some sort of um, a feeling that he he isn't happy at the club and and Cairo hasn't promised him what he thought he was going to promise him when he signed then in order to get a job at a sort of similar sized club in the summer, he needs to show something these last couple of games because otherwise the memory is just going to be that you're going to get a coach who will complain at every opportunity and he might fatter to sieve on some occasions and win sort of Monday Monday afternoon games in front of very few fans. But your, your overriding memory is going to be these sort of disappointing games where had we gave a little bit more, I, I I don't see. I think given our performances in the majority of games this season, we should be at least in with a chance of of European football. And and the fact that we're we're even fighting for the top ten and we could finish sort of below sort of teams who I don't think on paper have got anything. At our squads is is much better. Uh, I think that's I think that's a shame because after a couple of, of really poor seasons, I I definitely thought this season was my maybe get a bit a bit different. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a poor Serie A season. I think I mean it's got an exciting title race, but there's no there's no one standout team. Um, Milan, you know Milan at the moment might be favourites, but uh, I very rarely see actually see them play well. Whenever I see them see them play, I think Pioli's doing a doing a fine job there um 
you know Juventus are oh, we should really talk about Villarreal at some point as well that's how we should have started this pod um but yeah you know Juventus I looked at Juventus's fixtures earlier and it's not impossible that, that there's there's a lot of them that seem winnable and but it might end up being quite an average team that that wins the league and then I look at the teams around us you know if we if we end up slipping behind Bologna and Sampdoria after the promising start to the season we had um it would just be very very disappointing and it would be I think it would be going into going into next season even if Juric was the coach if we finish this season kind of 14th 15th um barely making 40 points or a few points over 40 points then I think we're kind of starting next season on the back foot as well and that's where if you're going to be if you're going to be sort of tired in March where you've got nothing to play for then are you when you actually got games to play for are you going to find that extra energy like it's not like we're playing in Europe it's not like we're still in a cup competition so we've got four sort of seven days between every game or six seven days between every game Although I think we only had five against uh, Genoa, so maybe that was maybe that was a factor in the fact that you played the Sunday and then the Friday. But I just think maybe that's given them a bit too much credit. And if you, I, I think Bellotti's question, I thought Bellotti's comments after the game, and probably need to move on at some stage because I, th- I think I might need to accept it that Bellotti is going to leave. Um, but I think his comments of the game sort of sort of summed up my opinion. Uh, on the whole Bellotti saga for the past two seasons is you can complain that Bellotti's running his contract down and, and that he's he's not done a bramer, he's not signed a new contract, he's going to leave on a free and we're not going to get anything for him. But have we actually ever given him a reason to stay? And it's not about money, I don't think. I think if it was about money, he probably would have followed Insigne and gone, and gone to Toronto. I think for him, it's about, about ambition. And ideally, if Torino... Were, able to give him that sort of indication that yes we're going to spend a little bit of money we're going to make it a, a real good opportunity to sort of get into Europe I genuinely think he would stay and I thought that this season Brecolo, Pratt, uh, Pratt sorry, and um, some of the some of the sort of other signs that we've made in, in January especially with Richie who's like a promising uh, young Italian talent that was maybe indicating towards Okay, we are sort of making an effort. We are making these investments, but but the fact that that question still remains and and Bellotti's got three, four months left on his contract makes me think that it's the reality is that that he will leave and and we are not going to be able to replace. Even though he's ha- had a bit of an indifferent season, struggled with injury, we're not going to be able to find a, a player of his quality for effectively just his wages. Like we're not going to be able to go and sign somebody. And then also pay them a wage, who's going to be even half as good as Bellotti is now. So that's that is my concern, and that's my frustration with the season. Is like, yeah, we didn't need to, we didn't need to qualify for Europe, but I think we just needed to show him and, and the fans that this team is capable of doing something special. And we've shown that in glimpses, but we've just not shown it enough. And and that's that, my worry is that it's just going to be the exact same season next season. Yeah, I mean, it's not his fault, but since Blotti's come back into the team, it's coincided with his really bad run. And I'd felt the same way. I felt when he was coming back from injury that, you know, the team had hit some form. And, you know, maybe if he comes back, um, starts scoring some goals and, and the team retains that momentum, maybe there'll be a conversation to be had. But I, I don't know how much Juric, if he does stay, is 
that committed to to Bellotti as well, whether he sees him as as the striker he wants uh, leading the lineup. Um, but yeah, I think I don't think he'll stay. I think he's what's our imagine what our win rate must be over the last two three seasons with Bellotti in the team. He's just he's just not had much to smile about aside the European Championships and that European Championships actually probably gave him a, a bit of a taste of being with better players playing in bigger matches um, so I don't, I don't expect he will stay and I just don't expect that the I don't expect that the current state of form the, and the mood within the team and the club is is really going to change that yes they might have put a very um, quite attractive package together by Torino standards financially uh, but I think you'll have to resign yourself to um, at my, me as well. Does that, that I think Bellotti will will leave in the summer. And I think so, similar to, similar to the Urich point that I made earlier as well. I think Bellotti's probably in in a little bit of danger himself. Is that he may because of his worrying form this season and wasn't really at his best last season. Also, even though he's on a free transfer, is he going to find a move? to a club that he would he would like. I think that's probably another opportunity where he would stay, just that nobody else comes in for him. Because if if I don't think he in current form would, would make it in the sort of top six clubs. So is he will would he as a starter, so would he be willing to sort of be a a, a rotation option or or I, I don't think he'd move abroad. So I just I think I, I'm not giving up hope just yet, but I think you might be right. I think um, I think we might be we might be seeing the end of Bolotti, unfortunately, in a Torino shirt. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't think he's I don't think he's a character who's particularly curious about playing abroad or living abroad. From um, and I think he probably will end up. It wouldn't make sense for him to go anywhere else in Serie A, but probably a top four or five club if he's wanting to play Champions League and, and um, you know play those bigger matches and he will have to risk being being a reserve but that maybe that's the price he'll he'll pay is a better salary um and yeah if you go somewhere like milan if i mean there's someone else but he's gonna you know you'd fancy him getting game time there um but yeah it'll be it'll be it'll be Interesting, I guess, but I suspect he'll go to Milan in the summer. I've got a sneaky feeling about Atalanta, um, weirdly, but um, yeah, let's let's. I think there might be a, a, a discussion for another episode because at the moment he's still a Torino player and uh, hopefully it's um, might move on to um, to your Torino hero of the week, uh, going from from one uh. From one striker to another. Yeah, so I'm I'm taking us back further in time than we've been to the summer of 1994. Young Robert, when you were probably still trying to pronounce the name Matthew Letizia. Um But yeah, I thought um, this player, I wouldn't say necessarily was a Torino legend in any way, nor were his performances on the whole. Um, would put him in a kind of hall of fame, but it was more an era his signing represented. Um, so I've gone for Jordan and uh, Jordan Ayew's dad, um, who 
better known as Abdi Pele. Um, I forgot the name Andre Ayew there Andre. as well, but father of Andre and Jordan Ayew. Um, but so yeah, Abdi Pele or Abedi Pele, Abdi Pele was um, what they referred to him as in Italy. Joined Torino in 94. So um, this really tells you a lot about Torino in the 90s that from 1991 to the mid 90s, these were the players who were effectively I'd say Torino didn't necessarily wear number 10s, but they were effectively the Torino number 10s. You had, you had Martin Vasquez, who signed from Real Madrid, Spanish international. Enzo Schifo, generational European talent from Belgium. Then we had Enzo Francescoli, one of the great South American players of the 80s, um, who came for a season. And actually, we kind of had Benito Carboni as a young Italian player uh, pushing through at the time. Then when they left, um, we signed Abede Pele. So he, um, he'd he won the European Cup three years before with Marseille in the team with um, the Magic Trio, they called them, with Papin and Waddle, and then lost the 93 final to Milan. Uh, he spent a season on Lyon, and then we picked him up from there, uh, probably around the age of 30. But this was, you know, this was just, you, you know, probably one of the first African players really to break through in Europe. Um and just, yeah, kind of one of those international names. Um, the season after, just to conclude that kind of, Torino actually made a very ambitious sign. We signed Hakan Suka uh, from Galatasaray, who completely bombed for, he just didn't settle in Italy. But um, that was kind of the big statement size signing the season after. After, um, we'll talk a little bit more about, about Pele at Torino, but obviously it ended in relegation. And I'll just read the, the number 10s that succeeded in the second half of the 90s. So we had Slovenian journeyman, Maciej Florianic. We had Claudio Bonomi, who we signed from Castel di Sangro. And it's quite an integral character in the Joe McGuinness book. And then for three seasons, we had a legendary uh, crab-like Massimo Brambia. So just look where Torino went from the early 90s to the end of of the 90s just just through that kind of um uh, yeah just through the number 10 shirt uh, absolutely incredible um and another couple of things it was a different era in italian football obviously late 80s early 90s it was the richest league in the world it's where everyone wanted to play and it was also the three foreigners rule so teams couldn't stockpile lots of foreigners you know some might have had four foreigners but and only but you could only only play three on the sunday so what you found is the play, uh, the top players went to play in Italy, but there was a spread of these players across all of the clubs, which is why you got Hadji at Brescia. Um, this is why you ended up having Battistuta in Serie B. We had you had um, you know Francesco, we picked up from he'd been at Cagliari for a number of seasons. So every team had uh, <clears throat> had a number a number ten who was a normally the star player in the, in their national team. And then you have a point. It's probably a, I'll flip this question to you, but quite often, as it's quite an Anglophone point of view, probably you'll tell someone you're a Torino fan, and quite often people will say, "Who's the most famous player to play for Torino?" And Torino have had lots and lots of legendary players and lots of players who've who've kind of defined the eras of Italian football. Lots of very good foreign players, but in terms of massive international stars, um, there's you know the the there probably has been not that many, which is why, if, as an you know, as an anglophone person, it'd often be Dennis Law might be one of the more famous. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just flick it back to you. I mean, I'm sure you've had that question, but 
I, I got a lot of that question um, when obviously Joe Hart signed. You, a, a lot of people who knew I was a Torino fan seemed to only remember that fact when Joe Hart signed and, and would get the questions, how, how's Joe Hart doing? And I think for a lot of people, I mean, as a Southampton fan growing up in Coventry, for the majority of my life, people thought I supported Sunderland because they both began with S and both wore red and white because it was, people just weren't expecting that that sort of response when people asked me to support who I supported. And I think sometimes you get that when when I bring up Torino, they would just sort of gloss over and, and not really, because they didn't know anything rather than ask a question. They they sort of didn't want to sort of show show up that they didn't really know much about Italian football and, and Torino. So I think when, when Hart made the move, that was sort of a, a way in for people that they knew something about Torino. They knew one of their players. But yeah, I definitely think you're right. Even even as somebody who, I mean, when when uh, Pele signed, I, w- I would have been not even five. Not, sorry to sorry to make you feel a bit odd there. Um, but he he was a, a player who I'd I'd heard of um, when I was sort of growing up. He was a player that I'd heard of, and then when I start, sort of started to read more about Torino, I was sort of shocked to to realise that he played for Torino uh, in the past. Um, and I uh, I probably may have suggested that we we tried to sign um either Andre or Jordan at one stage just to try and continue that family legacy but I think we probably had a lucky escape with um with Jordan especially um but yeah I think I think that's a good point he's he's a, he's a player who sort of transcends the the football aspect of it it's not just about uh, what he does on the pitch it's sort of what he does off the pitch and and sort of gets Torino to a sort of higher level outside of outside of Italy yeah, no, I agree, and I think I just think it, the great a lot of the great Torino players have been cult players, so they've not necessarily been uh, because of the era they played in, they couldn't become international stars, or um, a lot of them defined by what they did in the Torino shirt and and the relationship with with the Torino fans. You look at our greatest players like Pulici, Ferrini, Meroni, all all Torino legends in in, in different ways. But on the whole, not didn't have international careers um, uh, or, or or have particular success at other clubs. So they were not international stars in that way, but but massive stars in Serie A, massive massive Torino players, and obviously you had Valentino Mazzola and Il Grande Torino, which is a whole cult in itself. But in terms of having big international players who've at the same time been successful at Torino. Um, there hasn't been, I said, a lot of great players, a lot of good players, but that kind of yeah, absolute top player. Whether we've had them late in their career, early in their career, you know, we've not picked up a, a you know, when when Badger was doing his his tour of Italy, you know, part of me always wanted, uh, you know, if Torino had, had probably had a, a little bit of a higher profile at the time, um, it could have been, you know, it could have been a move um we could have made but you know you, you look at the that era and even Brescia had Guardiola and, and and Baggio for a while um so yeah but going back to Pele so Pele arrived in as I said in 94 he had two seasons uh the first season uh he Torino struggled at the start but ended up putting together um you know, a reasonably good campaign, not too far from Europe. It's the last season we won both the derby matches, which is why I think certain fans will um, will have fond memories because he played quite well in those games. They were the, the kind of Ruggiero Rizzitelli derbies, really, because he got 
he got the majority of the goals, but Pele, um, Pele played well in those matches. He was a bit of a streaky player. Um, he scored 10 goals in that first season. He had a lot of matches where he was he was brilliant and then a, quite a few matches where he, he, you know, he wasn't there. He, he, he didn't play particularly well. Um, but on the whole, that first season was was pretty positive, particularly the relationship with Itzitele. And, you know, just have that, one of the first kind of African players to make a, make a big impression in, in Italian football. And the second season, like I said, it, on paper, we'd put together a, a better team because we, we'd bought in Hakan Suko. Um, but that season just uh, ended up, you know, it en- ended up being a complete disaster. Pelle only played 17 times, scoring three goals and by middle of the second half of the season was injured and didn't play for us again. So, yeah, as a player, there was there were some some quite fond memories there. Um, and definitely that 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 first season he had, he, he he made an impact. But I think it was more, yeah, for me it was more that transition between you know Torino being almost at the elite of your of your you know it was the era we won a Coppa Italia, it's the era, era we got to the UEFA Cup final. Um, it's the era we always had five or six really very interesting, high quality players at the European level. And then his, yeah, the kind of seasons he he was there, he was kind of the last one of those in a way. Um, and yeah, just like like you said, someone, you know, it was a self-proclaimed Pele, really. And a lot of his a lot of his legend does come from that name. Um, but yeah, an, in, an interesting, definitely an interesting signing. And um, you know, one one in a way you'd like to see Torino make a little bit more often. It's just you know, I mean, Joe Hart for an Anglophone. Um, English people like us was, was in a way an exciting sign, signing probably for a lot of other Torino fans less so. But um, but those kind of left field signings um, of high profile players, and, you know, sometimes help put help push the club's kind of reputation and um, uh, and you know status forward a little bit. It's little, you know little, those kind of statement signings. Um, but yeah, it was Weird, um, weirdly the uh, weirdly the club didn't. Uh, Use the Joe Hart signing to to get a English Twitter account. They they waited for uh, a few more years after that. You thought that probably would have been a good idea to have started it then. But Torino Torino Football Club and their communication marketing strategy maybe one for another time. But, yes, yeah. that, that that could be a whole pod, um, which is sort of almost yeah. ironic. Bear in mind what Cairo makes his money in, but yeah, um, that, that is the whole. Yeah, I think that I think we should maybe um, spend a little bit of time another day but um yeah do you want to um where are you going with your villain of the week then so my villain of the week again similar to similarly to yourself it, it's not so much on the player um Torino have had much worse players play for them but it's probably more of what the player represents and sort of the the spell that he played at the club had a very similar uh theme about about our sort of transfer signings at the time so the player is Paolo Barreto, um, and obviously the theme is is Vin, uh, Gianpiero Ventura's uh, tendency uh, to just sign any player that he previously had at Bari. And uh, speaking as a wider football point, I don't like this transfer strategy when managers just sign players who've played well for them at previous clubs, because I think it shows very... A very short-sighted 
a belief in football that you can just replicate how things were in in one team and, and just continue to just move that at a different club. And obviously, there's going to be examples where there are successes. And, and Churchy was one who'd played under Ventura, I think, at Pisa, and then went on to do really well. And that's actually sort of progressed and and, and exceeded anything that he'd ever done previously. But Barreto was probably the the sort of main player of this time who had signed from Bari and there'd been a lot of talk about it. I think he signed in the in the January of 2013. So I think he must have at least been rumoured for, for a good 12 15, or 18 months. I'd say 15 seasons for a signing. <laughs> I mean, not to cut you off, but the, the, the kind of poster boy of, of players Ventura wanted to sign. I mean, do you remember Almiron? We must have gone four seasons of trying to sign with the, Almiron. With the, so- with the socks rolled down. The socks rolled down, like you know, like it was a kind of the Fran, the Franz Beckenbauer um, missing piece of jigsaw. Yeah, it, Almiron every transfer window. I think he ended up going to Catania, but there was Almiron Getzel. Uh, I remember, and um, Kutusov. I think it was a Belarusian striker. Yeah. Those three. Oh, old old Ace. He um, he uh, he got his hands on a lot of players, but he did, he did get hold of those ones, did he? But... And 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 some of them went on to do quite well. Uh, Gatsi, I think, was another player who he would uh, who Ventura would have had at Bari, and and again, they is probably remembered very fondly by Torino fans for his sort of just no nonsense midfield midfield play. But it was. It was very much in this in this era, so the sort of Ventura era between sort of 2011 to 2015, where where they were just it was actually a relatively good period of time for the club. But in the same way that you had that we were bemoaning the sort of lack of consistency for uh, for Juric and, and the current Torino side, I think frustration in this period was the fact that that all of our transfer targets were have they played for Bari and have they played for Ventura before? Well, and if those answers were yes, they would probably be signing. Yeah, I've got, I might impress you with this. Might be the first time for something, but um, yeah, I didn't know where you're going to take the Barreto thing. I'll probably talk a little bit about him in a minute, but I thought I'd, I was conscious as a fan at the time that we had a lot of former Bari players, but I just looked at earlier at Ventura seasons at Pisa and then at Bari and see actually how many any of those players we ended up pick, pick, picking up, and it's mind-blowing. So this is Pisa, Pisa 07 to 09. So Morello, who was a pretty dodgy reserve keeper from memory, Zavagno, Antonucci, Padelli, there's a theme coming with Padelli, Cherchi and Gabionetta um, were Pisa players uh, who four, you know, sometimes four years later ended up at Torino. Then Bari from 09 to to 11, you had Gilet. Iago Falque was there, but I don't think he came to Torino under Ventura. I think it was, um, then obviously your friend Barreto, Gazzi, Maziello, Parisi, Padelli again. So he took Padelli everywhere. Surprised he wasn't the, you know, the number one in the Nazionale when he was there. Meggiorini, another old friend. Camel Glick was on loan at Bari uh, for a while. Um, yeah, so that's almost up to about 15 players between Pisa and Bari that, that wound up at Torino and that, that sort of thing just made you realise how much power uh, although you know, Petraki was a very kind of 
um, as a sporting director, quite an interesting approach, but it just made you realise, at least for the first few seasons, just how much power Ventura had and actually why he was so difficult with any player who hadn't come through Bari or Pizzo or those sort of players had to prove themselves twice over. I think um, having having never incredible. worked having never worked at a uh, high level football club other than in the in the virtual reality realms of football manager, I, I've never really understood how the sporting director uh, system works in Italy. In comparison, that it's it's started to come into English football, but but my understanding would sort of be you would that a coach would sort of say I need a deep line playmaker or a regista if, if um, they're Italian, obviously. Um, and the sporting director would maybe put together three names. And I always get the feeling that with Ventura, they would say, I need a striker. I need a, I need a, a, a sort of pacey striker, somebody like Paolo Barreto. Petracchi would go away with his sort of uh, notebooks and sort of scouting tapes, and he'd put three strikers in front of him and say, okay, we we could get Barreto, but we could get this player from the Spanish second division. We could get this player from the sort of Hungarian third division, but he scored all these goals. Uh, and he looks like a really good prospect. Who do you want? And and the the, the answer more likely than that would be, I'll, I'll have the, the former Barry player, please. Sergio Almiron, please. <laughs> Sergio Almiron, please, Mr. Cairo. I like my hypothetical player. Is, it was a player in the Hungarian third division. I think that shows that I have been playing too much football magic because I'm not sure anybody would want to sign uh, somebody like that. But I think that I think my point would be that that's how I envisage it would happen. And that's because, like you say, Petrecki is responsible for, for signing some of our better signings over the last few years and players who have literally came from nowhere. Uh, and I think Singo was, was the last one of those. And the fact that Ventura had so much influence maybe suggests just sort of having that little bit of success just gave him so much power. And the fact that he could sort of come back and was like, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the coach who's brought Torino back into Serie A. So do as I say, I haven't done too badly for you so far. But whether um, whether it is the, the soundest uh, transfer strategy, I'm not so sure. And I feel a little bit bad for for Barreto to singling him out um, as sort of a, a a figurehead of this period, um, but I did do some I did do some research again beforehand and, and found out that he played 33 games for the club, scoring four goals. And weirdly, for a Torino player, my overriding memory of of Paolo Barreto is actually him not scoring, but him diving incredibly. And I'm not usually a fan of diving. And in, in in this scenario, it actually turned out maybe karma um, came back to bite us because uh, it was in the decisive um, 2014, basically Europa League playoff against Fiorentina um, that we, we drew 2-2. And Barreto, in the last minute, falls to the floor majestically to win a penalty. Uh, in which Alessio Cerchi, sort of Torino star player, on his way to the World Cup, um, takes and and do you remember who the the goalkeeper was who saved it? Former Torino player. Well, it was Rosati, wasn't it? And Fiorentina and Torino were twinned, and there was a there was a general kind of the vibe before the match was you know Torino couldn't be going to a better place to um, 
to seal the deal, even even without having Immobile, who was suspended. But they'd forgot the fact that this is Torino. We haven't won in Florence since, I mean, I always joke, since the unification of Italy. Uh, it's so long since we've won in Florence. Um, and then Churchy, yeah, you know, he's, it, it, it was set up for him to win it. And but then in, in, peak, in peak Torino fashion, uh, they, they snuck in the Europa League back door as uh, Palmer forgot to pay their tax bill. And um, the rest was history, actually. It was probably probably led to um, some of the greatest moments that I've ever had as a, as a Torino fan and, and being able to watch Torino in Europe um, was something that I, I didn't really think I was going to be able to do watching watching them in sort of Serie B um, for, for so long. Well, this seems like a very um, happy way to end the, the villain section. So maybe I'll, I'll get onto my uh, discussions about uh, watching Torino in Europe in, in a future episode. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to the Ventura thing. I think maybe Padraki came into his own when Ventura left. Um, and that's where we started to see the more interesting signings. And the other thing is Cairo had this... When Cairo became Torino president, he had this obsession with the coach being... He kept going on about it, like Ala Ferguson. He wanted an, an Alex Ferguson co- coach who would come in and be there forever. And possibly the what happened with Debiazzi. Uh, when Torino refan is Debiazzi brought in, yeah, Torino had to scramble a team together with about two weeks before the start of the season. But Debiazzi brought in a load of players he'd had at Modena, and Debiazzi was probably the most successful Torino coach under Cairo pre Ventura. And I think there was things that had been so bad when Ventura came in that Cairo was like, okay, let's go back to that system where the setup where the coach brings in the players they want. Um, and by and large, with Ventura, I mean, a lot of those Bari players it didn't actually work out particularly well with. But I think that's where that model model came in from. And there was, yeah, definitely, definitely kind of um, a desire to have very few people making decisions. Um, so that was that. And then Barreto as a player, I was just looking at him. He had a pretty, he hardly his career didn't really last that long in that, but he had a pretty good goal scoring record with uh, Bari and with Treviso probably a lot of Serie B but you know like one in two one in two he looked like he might have been quite an interesting signing because he was quite a nippy impish kind of forward um, but my memory of him was just kind of being injured the whole time um, and in fact after that first season at Torino he barely played any football again and when he left Torino I think pretty soon he was playing in the amateur leagues in his early 30s so I think his knee I can't remember if it was his knees but there was definitely some kind of chronic chronic injury record there and I think Barreto is probably much maligned because the other Torino backup striker at the time was La Rondo and you know whenever La Rondo and Barreto wheeled out together it was uh, yeah probably the one of the least effective strike partnerships we've ever had. I think I think to use a cricketing analogy, that was sort of Torino's declaration. That was sort of their uh, their way to sort of suggest that either the game was gone and and they were resting players or they were two or three nil up and and they were um they were sort of coasting and um giving uh Lorando or Barreto a chance. But yeah, like like we say, it seems a little bit harsh. Like you say he's um struggled with injury and it probably didn't see the best of him in his Torino spell. But for what he represented in that and that period of of the plethora of expiry players during that era, I think he, uh, I think that's why he's uh, 
my pick for Toro Villain of the Week. Very good. And I'll make a very bold prediction that Torino will not lose next weekend. Uh, I will recommend that that is a very good prediction because unfortunately it is an international week. Um, as English, uh, obviously Italy have got a very important game uh, on Thursday against North Macedonia and then again on Tuesday, hopefully. Um, but I suppose as English fans, I, it's always a bit of a strange one when, when Italy play because you, you, especially if there's Torino players involved in, in the in the Italy squad, you, you want them to do well, but I do seem to, sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm not actually Italian. Um, so it's probably not a, as big a game for us as, as those um, sort of back in back in Italy. But uh, our next game will, as the the uh, the league very kindly before the recording of this podcast have released their schedule for the next three games, um, will be on Saturday the second of April at seven forty-five against Salernitana. Um, so the the only plus side of that is that I think we're going to get together and record a, a special Salernitana preview episode. Is that right, Peter? There we go. Yeah, <laughs> you do realise we've not won a match since we started this podcast as well. And so and, I, and if I, I, um, I think we're going to have to, I think we have to take a long look at ourselves. If um, I, well, I, I mean think... Salernitana already looks doomed. They've got Davide Nicola, who I don't think. The miracle will happen for him this time, but if he, one thing he may want to do for the end, of, you know, while he's there is to, to to get three points over over Cairo, as much as he loves Torino. Um, but I can just see him putting up a very spirited, um, yeah, a spirited Salernitana side. And they've um, had, well, yeah, probably, we'll talk, we can talk more about that next week. Yeah, it probably wouldn't take much for them to improve this season, but I think there's been a little bit of improvement since he's took charge. But yeah, we've um, we've got a good sort of nearly two weeks to uh, to stew on our unfortunate one. Well, I say unfortunate, it was fully deserved, but our our, um, our poor display against Genoa. Um, so yeah, enjoy um, enjoy your your next couple of days or next two weeks or so without Torino and um, we will we will be back next week with a special preview episode uh, and maybe we'll be able to fit in another Toro Hero and Toro Villain. Forza Toro. Forza Toro.